Good, good to see you. Really happy to be able to be with you tonight and dive into God's word together. So we're going to continue on in Romans chapter 3. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, it gives us life. Lord, you give us understanding, though we don't deserve it. You give us understanding into your precious and powerful word. Lord, wherever we're at tonight, whether we did something that we regretted a few hours ago or last night or last week, Lord, whether we're in a place where we're stuck in sin, Lord, or we're walking in your spirit and looking into your face regularly, Lord, we pray wherever we're at tonight that you would center our hearts and our minds on you, that you would close out all distractions, Lord, that your word would be sweet to us and you'd make us quick to apply it. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. So Romans chapter 3, uh, verse 1. And I've got, as you guys are turning there, I've got a lot to cover tonight. So there's not going to be very many bells and whistles tonight, not a lot of stories, those kind of things. I have uh, just a lot of truth that I need to try to get us through in a short amount of time. Uh, because this is an important one. Romans chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every human being a liar, as it is written so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is just. Paul's being a good apologist here for the faith, and he's engaging in a little Q&A argument with these new Roman Jewish, in this case, Christians. He addresses Gentiles later. But they were reeling from what Paul had said in chapter 2, where he established their guilt. And Justin talked about some of that as they were talking about the fact that uh, they were circumcised and various other customs. And Paul establishes the unrighteousness of religious form without a relationship with God. And no one likes to be called a sinner. This is a very uncomfortable argument that Paul's having because he's taking a group of people that see themselves as spiritually elite and saying, you're not as great as you think you are. Humanity has always struggled to understand our broken relationship to a righteous and holy God. And in these ver first eight verses of Romans 3, Paul's dealing with some of the objections that these Roman Jewish Christians had in a Q&A form. He's kind of speaking what he knows they're thinking. And we'll see that they're squirming under the sentence of guilty as sinner before a righteous and holy God. And we may not relate to all of their questions, but we relate to that idea of trying to see ourselves as a decent person and not wanting to see ourselves as a sinner. 
So in verse 1, these Roman Jewish Christians were asking, is there any value to these outward biblical signs of faith that God told us to do? Paul says in verse 2, of course there's value in knowing God's word. He follows the argument of his audience by saying in verse 3, some of you are thinking God's word has failed because we've been unfaithful and God promised to be faithful. So doesn't that mean that God is unfaithful because we've been unfaithful? Paul responds, despite the failure of some to believe God's promise to save, our faithlessness only reveals how committed God is to pursue us even through our sinfulness in verses 3 through 5. Does that argument sound familiar? Well, Christianity is, it can't be the truth because look at the Crusades. You know, you look at the unfaithfulness of, of people who call themselves Christians, doesn't mean that God is unfaithful. Paul then takes another step up the ladder of thought with these early believers. And in verse five, he says, some of you are thinking, but if our unrighteousness is necessary for God's righteousness to be revealed, then isn't it not fair for God to judge? In other words, if, we, if we're going to sin and it's going to highlight God's righteousness and it makes God look good, then why should we get punished for that? And Paul seems to answer sarcastically in verse 6, basically saying, hey, we, we all know that God's the perfect judge. Finally, Paul deals with the last question these Roman Jewish believers had related to the issue of their sinfulness. In verse 8, he said, shouldn't we sin more to highlight God's glory? And we know later on in the book that that's what some thought Paul taught. And Paul says, no, I don't teach that. And if you do teach that, that would be sinful. So Paul concludes the argument with the sentence from God, the legal sentence from God. It's what Paul's been leading up to since chapter 1, verse 18. He's closing down a thought. And he says in verse 9, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage in other words, do Jews, who are God's people, do they have any advantage? Are they somehow closer to God just by being Jewish? He says, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. Quoting from the Old Testament. No one, nada. No one you know, no one in history no one is righteous before God. So he says everyone is under sin and no one is righteous. And being under sin is actually a legal term. You see, we all have a spiritual passport of sorts. And it's either stamped under sin or under grace. And all of us naturally are under sin. So Paul, to the dismay of both the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome, says religious and non-religious people are all under sin. So the immoral life of the debauchery Paul describes in chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and the person who is moral, which these Roman Jewish Christians were claiming to be moral, all of them, all of them, the moral, the immoral, the non-religious and religious are under sin legally before God. All of us. Think of it this way. It doesn't mean every person is as sinful as every other person, but that our legal condition is the same. We're all lost, and there's no varying degrees of our lostness before God. I mean, let's say, for instance, that I go up uh, to the top of a three-story building and jump off, and I die. 
Okay, and someone else falls off a three-story, Josh over here falls off a three-story building and he lives, but then he goes up four stories and falls off because Brady pushed him off and he dies. And, uh, and then Joy back there is some kind of superhuman and, you know, she eats organically and eats healthy food and all that stuff. And so she is pushed off uh, by Emily off a five-story building and somehow miraculously survives, then at six stories, dies. Now, all three of us are equally dead, right? There's no varying degrees of our deadness. So it is with our guilt before God. We are guilty before God. Now, why spend so much time talking about sin? The Bible talks about sin a lot, doesn't it? And, and, and especially here in Romans, Paul has been talking for a long time about sin. It's heavy stuff. It's uncomfortable. And we, by nature, don't like to talk about our own frailty and weaknesses. Whenever you corner someone about their behavior, what's the first thing they always say? Well, I'm not that bad or I'm not as bad as so-and-so. But when a crime is committed, we explore every detail, don't we? When a crime is committed, the legal system will come in there, and from the police to the investigators to the lawyers, it can take days, months, years even to establish someone's guilt. And we don't struggle at all with that process. We know it's very necessary to highlight what they have done wrong, especially when a serious crime is committed. Consider Chairman Mao who died before most of you were born, but he was a Chinese communist revolutionary and the founding father of the People's Republic of China, which he governed as chairman from 1949 until his death in 1976. He was responsible for the death of 78 million people during his tyrannical rule. Joseph Stalin, some 23 million, and of course the wicked destruction Hitler enacted, killing more than 12 million. Now, we would never ridicule the need to have talks and conversations establishing the guilt of those people, would we? If we were alive during those genocides, we would have listened to the radio, the TV, we would have, uh, we would have read the papers, we wanted to find out all we could about what they had done wrong because it's so heinous, and we would want them to be punished, we'd want them to be captured. And we do the same thing today on our phones and TVs and computers whenever a serious crime is committed. But when it comes to our own broken condition before God, we don't like to think about that. We don't want to think that we're all that bad. But God, through Paul, is establishing our guilt here. He wants us to get it. And it's actually a beautiful truth once we do grab it. He spends tons of time making God's case against us so that all can see their lostness, so that none of us think we have our stuff together. The immoral, the moral, the religious, and the non-religious, all equally as lost before God. We see the depth of our depravity, the layers of our lostness in this next section, starting in verse 10. We see the seven very deep and deadly effects that sin has on us. Paul highlights here, hey, this is what sin is. It's more than just bad stuff versus good stuff. The first is, no one is legally right before God, water break. Man, I've been yelling way too much today. Not a good idea when you're teaching. Yelling encouragement mainly. Not at the kids. Only a few times at the kids. Uh, so no one is legally right before God. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. So our deeds can't change this reality. We can't act our way out of our legal predicament with God. We can't. No good behavior can get us off the hook. The second is sin has impacted our minds. No one understands God. Romans 3.11, there is no one who understands. Isn't that interesting? There are people, I think Beto mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I mean, there are people who are a lot smarter than anyone in this room who study the Bible and know the Bible better than any of us who aren't even Christians, who in fact are atheists. Don't they understand God? That's not the kind of, just a cognitive knowledge is not what we're talking about here. It says in Ephesians 4.18 that they, sinful people, they, they, have dark, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Our natural, innate, sinful self-centeredness leads us to filter out the reality of God's truth. We can't understand it. We're simply blind to it. And we're in denial saying that everything's fine because we're incapable of thinking about God correctly. That's why just believing that God exists is not enough. There are plenty of people who think they understand God maybe because they understand the basics of the faith. But the understanding we're talking about here is like the understanding between a husband and a wife, a love and a devotion. We can't do that. We can't understand. We can't know and love God on our own. He has to prepare us for that. And sin has impacted our motives. There's no person who seeks God. In the second part of uh, Romans 3, verse 11, it says there is no one who seeks God. We naturally, in and of ourselves, don't want to find him. We don't want him to rule and reign our lives. We actively run and hide in all we do. Even the religious and the moral run from him, trying to establish their own standards and say, saying, look at all these good things I do. It actually makes them farther from God. Sin has impacted our wills, the fourth. We've willingly turned away from God. In Romans 3.12, all have turned away. We've made a conscious decision to turn away from God, naturally in and of ourselves. We think we have the right to do whatever we want and then declare ourselves religious by our own standards. When many of you uh, college students get a little bit older, uh, you'll see this, but you'll see people who you knew when they were very young, way back in high school or whatever, and you'll see how their morals and standards change as they age because they're judging themselves by themselves. So we've turned away Our own thoughts regarding our own behavior doesn't make us any more or less guilty before God. So whether we fall onto the, uh, uh, we feel like we're condemned, we feel like God could never love us on one hand, so why even bother? Or on the other, we think, well, I've got all my stuff together. Look at how religious or good I am. We're all equally as lost. Let's say I'm arrested for arson and I, uh, because I set Kimball's car on fire. I'm being kind of violent tonight in my illustrations, aren't I? <laughs> and, you know, I try to convince the judge, though, that I'm very nice to my neighbor. Every time I see him, you know, I say hi to Frank. I play with his little dog. You know, uh, I, I mow, mow the front of his yard from time to time. You know, I'm a really good neighbor. The judge would definitely have a funny story to tell his wife and kids 
but I would still be guilty. My thoughts regarding my own behavior, well, I'm a good neighbor, I'm a decent guy. That would not matter. So our own thoughts about ourselves don't even really matter because we're guilty before God, regardless of how good we think we are. And sin has even impacted our speech. Our sinfulness is expressed through our mouths. Romans 3, 13 through 14, a very colorful, dark description here of our words. It says, their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Our throats are open, uh, it says, are open graves. We use our speech to protect ourselves at all cost. Lying, cheating, hatefulness. Um, we sin against other people with our mouths. And most of the deepest wounds that, we, that have been uh, inflicted on us and that we've inflicted on others have been with our words, right? It's been with things that have been said. It's even impacted our speech. It's impacted our relationships. Number six, in Romans 3, verse 15, it says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace, they do not know. We push others out of the way to get our own way. We use anger and manipulation or some other sinful means if someone gets in the way of one of our idols. We get frustrated when someone takes too long with our food because of our idol of comfort and ease when it's disrupted. And sin, most importantly, number seven, has impacted our relationship to God. It says in Romans 3 verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Many would claim that saying that no one seeks God, we'd say that's too far. We'd say, hold on, weren't we all seekers at one point? I mean, aren't there people who are interested in spiritual things? That's not the kind of seeking he's talking about here. He's saying that no one acting from their own will, ability, and motivation want to find God. God has to come and give us that motivation to find him. Some might have intellectual interest in God or a philosophical conviction that God exists, but no one naturally has a passion to know and love God. Maybe they want his blessings, but not him. Maybe they pray from time to time when they hit a snag in life. But as long as we keep him in the realm of philosophy or as fire insurance when we get into a jam or theory, we don't deal with the objective reality that he's real and he has a claim over us. You know, some might even want spiritual peace or anxiety during a difficult situation or wisdom to move forward with some type of life decision. But none of these are the same as seeking to know and love God. No one can do that unless God changes our hearts first. This is actually an awesome truth, even though it sounds depressing. Who feels a little depressed after all that? Anybody? All right, we got one. Justin feels a little depressed. Kimball feels a little depressed. Yeah, very good. There's two leaders in the church that feel depressed with these truths. Uh, it's, an, it's an awesome truth, even though it sounds depressing. It means that anyone seeking God has to be sought out by God first. And that's good news. 
In John 6, verse 44, it says, no one, Jesus is speaking here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. And in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, it says, Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. God has to turn the light bulb on in our souls. It's not about us. I was meeting with someone here just recently, and they said, you know, that their life was going along fine before they came to know Christ. But there was just something inside of them that clicked, and they had to seek him. It's because God loved us. He loves us first. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith from start to finish. He does all the heavy lifting. It's not about us and our good deeds. Turning to God is not accomplished by the things we do for God so that somehow he will work in us. There are works that God does in us so that we can turn to him. We don't come to faith in him and find him because we sought him out. We put our faith in him only because he first decided to give us faith. Ephesians 2 says that faith, that's what we need in order to be saved or rescued from our sins, is a gift from God and not by works so that no one can boast. That's why I don't like the expression, well, so-and-so found faith. No, faith found them. This should humble us and should thrill us to know everything about our salvation from first to last, according to Philippians 1.6, is all from God. Any good we have is from his hand, and it's sheer grace. It's grace. If you feel far from God tonight and have found yourself somehow in a church, make no mistake, your friend did not bring you here. God did. I mean, your friend did physically bring you here, but you know what I mean. This doesn't mean that, well, let me back up here. Now, if it seems like an exaggeration for Paul to say that no one seeks God, it's, this next claim is going to sound even more unbelievable. In 3.12, it says that no one does good. That is extreme. I know a lot of people that don't know Christ who seem to do a lot more good than me. This isn't saying that people don't do great things to transform their society and the lives of people. We, we got to remember what kind of good is being addressed here. What it's talking about is good as it relates to our salvation. In other words, our good works cannot get us into a right relationship with God. So that's what it means. No one does good. In God's eyes, our motives are flawed and it's all garbage. Isaiah says that uh, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. These things that we do to try to impress God outside of a love that he has for us and that we have for him are filthy rags. The 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon often told a story to get to this point. And if you've never read him, by the way, I've read a lot of his stuff. Even though he's an old dead preacher guy, his teachings are just amazing. They are very, very good and very readable. Uh, he actually has, he has written more than any other Christian author ever. More, more, uh, more, for, more sermons from him than any other uh, Christian ever. So he says this, once in a kingdom long ago, a gardener grew a huge carrot. 
He decided to give it to his prince because he loved his sovereign. When he gave it, the prince discerned his love and devotion and the fact that he expected nothing in return. So as the gardener turned to leave, he said, here, my son, I want to give you some of my land so that you can produce an even greater crop. It's yours. The gardener went home rejoicing. A nobleman heard of this incident and thought, if that's what the prince gives in response to the gift of a carrot, what would he give me if I gave him a fine horse? So the nobleman came in and presented the prince with the fine steed as a gift. But the prince discerned his heart and said, you expect me to give to you as I did to the gardener, but I will not. You're very different. The gardener gave the carrot, but you are giving yourself a horse. And highlighting our deeds, oftentimes we do good things, but apart from Christ, we do it with ulterior motives. To feel good about ourselves, to feel like we're contributing, maybe so that others will notice us and recognize us. But if you know God loves you in Christ, you know that you cannot do, nor do you need to do anything, but, is, but accept his perfect gift of righteousness in order to be saved. Because when someone receives the rescue that Christ offers us through the blood he shed on his cross and through rising from the dead, it is a gift. And when God sees us, he sees his son and he sees us uh, uh, without sin. He says he separated our sins as far as the east is from the west, no longer counting our sins against us. And we're free. That passport changes in an instant. Under grace, not by anything we've done. This is good news. Because if our salvation were based on good deeds, then we would be proud and arrogant when we were doing well. And when we were doing poorly, we'd be anxious and worried and feel condemned. But our salvation is not based on our deeds. He loves us if we know and love Jesus. He loves us as much as he's ever going to love us right now in this moment. And that frees us up to do good things for him as a gift for him. The difference between a Christian and a religious person is not their attitude towards sin. I mean, that's an issue as well. But uh, it's really their attitude towards their good deeds, you see, a Christian will repent of their wrongly motivated good works while the religious person will rely on them. The religious person thinks, all I have is my deeds. The only reason God would accept me are because of my deeds. And then here in verse 18, it's a summary of what Paul said from verse 10 on, and it answers where the ignorance of God comes from. From verse 11, where the willful independence is rooted in verse 12, and where selfish good deeds come from in verse 12, it even addresses the source of our evil words discussed in verse 13 and 14, and our evil actions in verses 15 through 17. It says in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. And fear of God is something that only God can give us. Our sin comes from not having a fear of God. Psalm 111.10 says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. But what is the fear of God? It's not what you think. It's not what you think. There's a surprising answer to that question in Psalm 130 verse 3. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, that sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So what does that mean? Fear of God 
is in response to his forgiveness of us. It's not a fear that cringes before this God who's about to punish you. It's an awe. It's a trembling joy because of the greatness of God and the depth of his love for us. The only example I could come up with, and it doesn't even come close, but it's the fear and reverence you have when you see a beautiful mountain or crashing waves or you are in an especially intimate relationship and you enjoy that, the gift of this other person so much. There's an awe there. There's a respect that this is something special. So it is with God. He gives us a deep love for him, a trembling joy. That is the root of our sin. We have no, we cannot love God on our own. So fearing God is the antidote to sin and only God can grant it to us. So let's take uh, a quick look at a couple examples from the seven effects of sin that we looked at just a few minutes ago. Verse 11 says no one seeks God and sin is running away from God which is the opposite of fearing him. Fearing him makes us passionate about coming to him and living our life with him. But again, only God can give us that kind of reverence for him. One more example from verse 13. It says, their throats are open graves. It's only if the glory and love of the Lord, uh, it's only if those things are unreal to us, uh, only if those things are unreal to us can we lie and destroy others with our tongues with no remorse and repentance. But when we have a fear of God, we now care about what we say. We now want our words to build others up, not tear them down. Now, some might say that their sentence of under sin that all humanity shares and the reality that only salvation is uh, the gift of faith, the fear of God that only God can grant us is only for those who acknowledge it. In other words, if you're not a Christian and you choose not to go down that path, then why does it really matter? How can you still be under sin? In other words, if you don't care about God, then who cares? Right? Paul addresses that in verse 19. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole earth held accountable to God. Worship team, you can go ahead and come on up. Silent disobedience to the law, God's law, that is the law contained in the Bible, is still disobedience. And it applies to everyone, to those who know the law, who are aware of it, and also to those who don't care about it. If I don't care that it's illegal to set fire to Kimball's car, it doesn't make it any more or any less legal, does it? I mean, it's still illegal. Whether I care about what I did, or it's still illegal. So it is with God. Apathy, ignorance, is not an acceptable response. According to verse 20, the law is not given so that by observing it, we can be declared righteous. It says in verse 20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, whether through the law we become conscious of our sin. God's law contained in the Bible is not a checklist we can keep. Okay, it's not a checklist. Have I obeyed this? Have I obeyed this? The reason God provides his law in the Bible, all of the commandments, is so that we see we all fall miserably short of his glorious standard. 
That's what Paul's winding up here, trying to help us get that we are not justified by the good deeds that we try to do for God. But through the law, the whole point is we become conscious of sin. And the light bulb goes off. For the believer, that means he uses this as a a salve to rub on our soul to prevent us from the disease of legalism. The longer we follow Christ thinking that it's somehow our church attendance or it's somehow that we haven't stumbled in this or that area for X number of days or weeks or months or because we've uh, 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 shared the gospel more this month than we did last month and we feel high as a kite. And then the next month we struggle and we stumble and we fall and so then we feel condemned. It's to protect us from that. To say that it is by his grace that we're saved. Now the consequences of sin are there, of course, and we have to walk through those. But we can do so with confidence and with faith because we know we're not justified by our deeds. That he already loves us as much as he's ever gonna love us. You know what I appreciate? I appreciate, you know how I can tell if someone has a strong faith? They talk about their sin. And they talk about it matter-of-factly. Here's what I'm struggling with. I know I'm going to get through this. I need some accountability. There's no shame. You know why? Because they know who justifies them. They don't need that. That that person's judgment doesn't mean too much to them. They know that God already loves them and that he's going to help them get through that particular struggle. I think it declares our frailty of faith when we try to hide That's a man or woman of weak faith if we try to hide our sin. We don't have to hide anymore, and that's good news. And for those of you who don't know Christ and you feel like you're maybe a little ways off, I hope that you're listening to this right now and you're taking a deep breath and saying, you mean he loves me that much? That it's not about what I do? All this time, I've thought that somehow I've got to measure up, and you're saying that's impossible. It's all about him. In just a few moments, uh, you're going to hear, Kimball's going to share with you about how you can pass from death to life. You can accept his free gift of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that I could finish this sermon. I think it was an important one for us to hear. Lord, we thank you so much for your son. Jesus, we love you. We adore you. We thank you, Lord, that you went into the depths of hell. And you did so to rescue us. Lord, we thank you that you understand us. We love it when we can talk to someone who's gone through a similar struggle because we know they understand. And your word tells us you were tempted in every way but without sin. We thank you that you understand us. That your word tells us that you live to intercede for us. And even right now, Lord, we all together as one body, we agree with the prayers that you're praying for us right now. We come alongside you and agree with what you're praying for us. And say, come, Lord Jesus, we want to see you. We want to experience all that you have for us. Please move us out of legalism, thinking that we can do it on our own, that we can somehow be justified in, uh, through our own good works before you. And Lord, please help us to see your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.